0: now entering nerdist.com
1: here we go last live nerdist writers panels of the year are coming up in october and november october 8th in new york as part of new york comic-con from 3 p.m to 4 p.m join me and special surprise guests we're gonna do something a little bit different Uh, i hope you can join us for that los angeles october 15th at cbs radford studio Uh, With CBS studio all-star showrunners, including Rob Doherty of Elementary, Aileen Brush McKenna of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Craig Sweeney of Limitless, and our old pal Jenny Snyder-Ehrman, the showrunner of Jane the Virgin. This should be a really fun time. It's hosted at CBS, but you can get tickets. They're really cheap, only $5. Uh, Hope you can join us on October 15th. If not, Los Angeles, October 18th at Meltdown, celebrating Hulu's new show, Casual, With director Jason Reitman uh, Who of course directed Juno, Young Adult, some other films Uh, Our old friend Liz Tegelar, the creator of Life Unexpected Uh, And all the folks behind Casual Will also be screening episodes you have never seen before Uh, So join us on the 18th for that, Los Angeles And finally, Boston, November 14th At Brookline Booksmith with Joe Hill This was rescheduled from last month Uh, We're finally going to do this. Uh, Joe is a terrific writer and a great guy. It should be a fun conversation, uh, and that benefits 826 Boston. All the others benefit 826 LA. Hope you can join us. For details, go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's where I'll put all of the information as well as more information and other stuff. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blacker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now so this will be the end of the
2: theme.
1: My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I'm also a television writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, uh, DreamWorks, Puss in Boots, and currently FX's new series Cassius and Clay. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and let me know who you'd like to see on this show. I'm always looking for new ideas. For guests, and you can always find out about live Nerdist writers panels. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. As ever, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And thanks for listening. Uh, Starting right here with uh, Kit, please introduce yourself on the microphone and tell us uh, some things you have worked on that these people might know from, and what you're working on currently. My name is Kit
3: Boss. That is my real name. Uh, my credits include King of the Hill. Uh, b- uh, yeah, let's stretch hold it. Hold you your Stretch it. Out, please. <laughs> uh, Louis C.K.'s other show.
1: Not the HBO show?
3: Yeah. We are going to talk the about it. show he bats. had to do before he could yeah. do. Louis. I didn't know you worked on that. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Bob's Burgers. Mm-hmm. And uh, my current show that I work on is iZombie. Zombie*. Sure. Wow, thank you. Noelle.
4: Um, I've uh, worked on. Please Smash. introduce yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm In Noelle Valdivia, and I've worked on um, *Awake* and. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very lonely person back there. Uh, and. That was Smash. Kyle Killen. <laughs> Actually, it was my sister. Um, and *Smash*. And Masters of Sex, and Manhattan, and Marco Polo.
0: It's a good resume. Solid. Have you seen Narcos?
4: Are they hiring? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Damon. Uh, my name is Damon Lindelof, and uh, I've worked on uh, Wasteland, next Bridges, Crossing Jordan, <laughs> And uh, Cowboys and Aliens. Good, good choice.
2: Good
5: choice. Chris. Uh, God, thank you for using those credits so I don't have to follow. Uh, my name is Chris Dinges. Uh Currently I'm uh, writing for Marvel's Agent Carter. And... Uh, uh, comic for Skybound, Manifest Destiny, which is available for purchase in dot
1: That is a great book. I totally forgot you were oh, writing that. Thank you. I really like it. And Will you tell the people the premise because it's a great idea. Uh,
5: it's uh, the, the journal that you had to read in junior high was a lie, and they were actually fighting monsters and Lewis doing and horrible, horrible things. It's, um, it's really fun. Check it thanks. out. Thanks. And before that, I worked on Reaper, Being Human, Ed, and a couple other things. Cool. Yeah. Let's, um, let's kick it off by
1: talking to you
5: um, okay. A little bit about Agent
1: Carter It's always interesting to me to hear About you know, The writers who are telling the stories In these much larger universes Right. Um, and, and Damon you can probably Speak to this a little bit as far as the Star Trek Stuff as well uh, But you know Is it different from other rooms you've been in Is there a presence felt because we look at, you know, maybe Kevin Feige as the showrunner of all
5: of Marvel. Um, well, with TV, we deal a lot with Jeff Lowe, but Kevin Feige and Louis D'Esposito are involved because Agent Carter comes from the directly from Captain America. Yeah. Uh, and they, with Marvel, there's a Marvel, like a, a creative person in the room with us, but they've actually, it's been incredibly helpful. And, and with, with Agent Carter, we're in this weird little area, like post cap falling into the icy water and pre cap being pulled out of the icy water so th- we're, we live sort of in this this in between superhero yeah. era which which actually frees us up to do a lot of stuff and we 're not beholden to a lot of the other marvel mm-hmm. creations. We kind of do our own thing
1: but you 're also a comic book guy, and so is there yeah. you know. Is there stuff you want to bring in but can't, or it's not the time for it, or is
5: there a conversation like that? Um. Well, last season we were we were they every once in a while they give us a toy to play with, really? like we did sort of of a, a, a spin maybe on the Black Widow uh the Black Widow program, right? And uh, we get to they give us tiny little things <laughs> to use and maybe tie into Agents of Shield or the movies. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, that was another kind of big thing, because I know you know those shows did tie together, and I talked to Physicus mm-hmm. and Butters a little bit about it, right. but now that we 've actually seen it, Agent Carter the first season, what was that juggling act like? Because there were some pretty strong story ties there
5: uh, it was uh, I, th- I feel like we had the easier part because we 're in the past, and then mm-hmm. agents of Shield had to work harder to kind <laughs> of tie that sort of stuff in and um, Jeff Loeb is really the conduit uh, and, and Megan Bradner, who works with Jeff, they're sort of the conduit between the shows. And we, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. did their thing, we did our thing, and they sort of found the threads of, of sort of like, I guess, like the brainwashing technique and all of that stuff that we introduced in ours. And by the time their villain is, is sort of gone over our villain's notes from the 40s and uses it, in Agents that's of S.H.I.E.L.D.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, Damon, a similar question. You've worked on some of these big franchises, mostly in movies. Um, in movies, I imagine, there's a whole lot of interference from whoever owns these things. Uh,
0: there is and there isn't. I mean, uh, for for Trek, um, there... E- if you're if you're any kind of a student of Trek, even even for Next Generation, that's where the sort of Roddenberry era ended because Gene Roddenberry was alive for the first couple seasons of, of Next Generation, and then it acquired new stewardship, and so you could say um, it, it's it's Rick Berman and. On Brandon Braga and Ron Moore are now basically the stewards of it, but at the same time, Paramount basically owned and controlled Trek, um, or, or as, and CBS as a television entity. But at the time that um, that JJ came in and it was really initiated by JJ and Brian Burke, they had a call with with an executive at Paramount who said, "Do you do you want to take over Star Trek? Do whatever you want." That mm-hmm. was kind of like a carte blanche thing, um, uh, because the the next gen movies. Um, uh, It had been several years uh, Since since they'd been out And Enterprise on TV was was Kind of um, about to um, About to end or it had just Ended so this was like the first two Year period where there was going to be No Trek being Made out there and they saw it as a prime opportunity And I think that You know, what I'd say, you you know, to this very complex idea, and I I would assume that Marvel movies and television, for those of us who are comic book consumers, are going to start to experience is they're going to have to launch like their own ultimate universe or characters out of continuity like Wolverine, where you essentially because the the continuity becomes so restrictive in terms of canon, where you just go like there's a list a mile long of shit you cannot do that is cool because you're going to ruin You know something else, and then also, if you in success, if you have four or five different things going on, there's just no way humanly possible that you can have people running in between all those rooms saying, "This is what we need to do," and "This is what we can't do," and "This is what we can do." And you know, as as fans of this stuff, we want there to be some sort of fundamental uh, uh, continuity and understand how all these things uh, interlock. But at the same time, if we go and see. it's not Days of Future Past, which is uh, First Class was the was the was the first fast yeah. bender. So you go and see that, and then and then Hugh Jackman pops up in that and tells them, you know, to fuck off. And you're basically like, that's awesome. And your brain doesn't go, but it's out of canon. Like, you know, like you're just like, we'll take awesome over canon any day of the week. And I think that, you know, we knew the challenge of Trek was we had to be inside canon. We couldn't say that. Everything that you've ever seen of Star Trek <laughs> never happened, but at the same time was there a way to take the original crew and um, and have them go off in a in a in a new direction um, or do our own ultimate universe as it were um, and so time travel became the obvious uh, uh, mechanism or cheat, whichever way you want to look at it, to sort of accomplish that and then you know and then on Prometheus, which is the only other experience I've had with with yeah. with, with that you know I'm sitting across from Ridley he's That's you don't have to be. That's the guy you talk to. So if he says, you know, if he's telling you that the space jockey is, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, invented life on Earth, (laughs) you just go. I guess he did. You You can't be like, I'm not. I'm not buying that. (laughs) You know, he says that. That's what it is. Then that's what it is. The the other thing I was curious about in these big movies,
1: um, and I promise when we come back around, we'll get back to television, but. You know, you're a guy that we know who has worked on these sort of large canvas TV shows telling very personal stories. Not just personal to the characters, but I think personal to you as well. Are you able to do that in film on these big sort of
0: blockbuster movies? Probably not. I mean, I think that the ambition is different and I and I also feel that I haven't, you know, they're... they're there, there probably is a formula to a successful movie, but I don't know what it is yet I mean I know what I like and what I respond to and I do feel that you know the big um, the big tentpole movies do have some sort of grain of, of personality to them where you go and see them and you say you know I, I feel like um, back to the future works because Zemeckis has a real nostalgia for Mm -hmm. the year 1955. In addition to all the great things that are happening in it and all the great comedy, um, there is something kind of personal and that's what makes it work. So you have to kind of lock into the thing that, you know, uh, movies should be fun to watch. So I think if you go and see Jurassic World, you know, um, uh, Colin obviously has this great love and affection for Mm -hmm. the original Jurassic Park and it comes out in that movie and you can feel it. But you go and see that movie and you're not like, he's also not saying I'm going to make a grand statement about genetic you know tampering like so you have to you know more than anything else I think for certain kinds of as you say big canvas movies your first job is to basically make them wildly entertaining you know and then and then and then the other part is, um, if you can, if you try not to be too preachy, you know. I mean, make it personal uh, to you. Obviously, you should you shouldn't tell any story that doesn't feel like it's your story mm-hmm. in some way. But um, well, let me uh, let me dig a little
1: deeper on that for a second. On say Prometheus, uh-huh. what did you latch onto in the bones of that,
0: or you know, in the history of loving the alien movies, to tell that story? I. That's a great question, and I think the real honest answer is that, um, and and I apologize for anyone if you've heard me tell the story before, it's just the way that it happened, is I finished Lost, I went away for a month um, on vacation and just, just became a human again, and I was back for two days, and I was driving down Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, and my phone rang, and my agent said, Ridley Scott is calling me in five minutes, and... Uh, like, Are you available? And I pulled my car over at the corner of Laurel Canyon And Ventura Right in front of the newsstand Because I remember <laughs> yeah. exactly where I was And then my phone rang And it was Ridley Scott And so that's why I did Prometheus That's a
2: good reason <laughs>
0: It's, it's not movie. like, you know, like I'm, uh, I, I think like everything sort of followed. And I, and I think he sent me a script that John Spates had already written. And I think there were a lot of things in there that were working great and that Ridley was very passionate about. And he was at the time engaged in, you know, um, a dispute like, uh, with, with Fox about what the movie wanted to be and what the rating of the movie was going to be. And so they, you know, I think that John was doing good work for them. But we've all been in scenarios where writer changes are made. And the same reason, uh, uh, i 'm I'm told in the world of sports, which I hear is very popular, <laughs> that, that, that pitching changes are made where it 's like you pitch you pitch seven and three quarters great innings, but this guy 's a lefty, you know, and we need we 're going to bring out a lefty now and so they they brought me in for a very specific reason, and then that was the next seven or eight months of my life was getting to sit across a table. <laughs> Uh, from Ridley Scott who I worshipped and adored um and helped execute that that movie with him so um but in terms of personal yeah I mean the mystery elements were really Ridley was saying I want to unapologetically present um my uh my uh my scientific uh my sci-fi explanation for how life began on the planet um and uh, and then I want to end the movie in a very cool and ambiguous way that could lead to a s- sequel that would not be Alien. Right. so it kind of goes off in its own and I was like oh that's an interesting way of looking at a prequel which is it takes place before the original movie but then it launches characters in a direction mm-hmm. that's parallel to it's a lot like you know kind of Agent Carter which is like you know Captain America ended and then there's uh, the second then there's Winter Soldier but this this is a sequel to the prequel right. that's, that's following a different character we know what happens to Agent Carter right? you know no spoiler alert we watched her die allegedly <laughs> you know like you know but you can still be involved in her adventure so I yeah. thought that that was pretty Cool too, and that's why I, why I took the gig.
1: Is it? Is great reasons to do it? Uh, and money. Work <laughs> also a great reason. Lots and lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> but work that's fun yes. absolutely counts. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a good reason to get into anything. Um, Noelle, hi, hi. Uh, yes. You've worked on some heavy stuff. Yeah, like big kind of award winning. And really high-quality material. Yes. Were you able, as a, a writer on staff, where this, these are not your shows, to put yourself into these shows?
4: Um, I think very much. It's, uh, it was interesting listening to them talk about that because there's no more restrictive canon to be <laughs> dealing with than real life. It's absolutely uh, terrifying, and just because of lawsuits. Like, Virginia Masters was still alive when Masters of Sex started. Um, No one from Marco Polo was still alive, so that (laughs) that was good. Allegedly. (laughs) Um, But yes, and it's uh, very much like the question you just asked about telling personal stories at the same time as being very entertaining. Um, We'll never know what happened in the conversations, like, between the scientists at Los Alamos outside of the scientific stuff that was recorded, but... Each show has, you know, a theme that comes from the real-life stuff, like Masters of Sex. Um, That sex is actually a very scientific thing, and, like, the physicality of it is very by-the-book, but you can't account for the emotional stuff, and that's actually what the show makes the meal of, Mm -hmm. in addition to having the science as the background. And Manhattan manages to talk about kind of the moral quandary of wanting to do what's right and not really knowing what your priorities should be and who to put first and, you know, country versus personal life and obligations versus, you know, pleasure and Mm -hmm. happiness. And so I think that that's probably where uh, it becomes less cerebral cerebral Mm -hmm. and more relatable for everyone. And, yeah, I think you very much end up putting yourself in that. Um,
1: Is there stuff, and again, I want to dig in a little bit on this. Are there episodes... Whether they have your name on them or not Or scenes even where you can say That absolutely came from me Or that was that emotion was true to me
4: um, Yeah there's, I, there's one episode of one show I won't say which but I very much Modeled a character after uh, My ex's New girlfriend <laughs> But it was a male character um, Laughter but every time I see it, I'm just like I get like a small frisson of just like fuck you. Anyways. Very, very, and no, like very few people even know sure. that because I didn't pitch it that way. Like right. you know who sucks? Let's think.
1: let's go to town
4: on her. Well, what did that allow
1: you? What did that allow you to
4: do? Vent. Sharp. Sure. Uh, no, it was actually a it was a, a much more interesting um, idea of just like uh, someone who hasn't questioned their career very much, um, but. I, I don't know it, it allowed me to take something that I've uh, Thought about a lot And apply it to You develop an affection for these characters You're writing about Like even the bad ones And it actually allowed me to be very judicious Because I uh, I Was able to ascribe it to a character That I like very very much <laughs> yeah,
1: I would imagine it makes it For a much more real character for you
4: um, I suppose so Um, I mean,
1: in the same way that any of us will, you know, maybe choose an actor to write, and, you know, that actor's not necessarily going to play that part, but it grounds that, that character in a way.
4: I mean, I think to some extent, a lot of writing comes, like, I've always had a very vivid fantasy life. And I think uh, sometimes when I'm writing, I think everyone's me, and I'm like, what would be the awesomest thing to do and say (laughs) in that situation? And that makes everything very personal, but then it's sort of, that's just the launching point, and it grows and fleshes out from there and becomes its own thing. And that's where the room is great, having someone who's like, uh, all of your characters sound alike, like (laughs) you. (laughs) Um, Have you had that feedback? Uh, I get that. I've had that feedback on my original stuff, not actually on my stuff for uh, work. So what do
1: you do when you get that feedback?
4: Um, I feel I argue with it for two minutes, and then I realize it's absolutely correct. (laughs) And then I beat myself up for two more minutes, and then I
3: start to fix it. Then you give someone an accent. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Totally works. Change the gender. Totally works.
1: Uh, Kid. How is I zombie going uh, you're a comedy guy
2: I was <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you
1: are <I> was. <laughs> uh, and you are thrown into this room which I know they were specifically looking for some comedy people yeah. uh, are there oh boy, were they surprised tell me tell me about that experience you mean getting thrown into a drama room uh,
2: well, and like
1: a Rob, procedural a room comedy. too yeah
3: and Rob Thomas you know co-created Party Down, mm-hmm. which is a very funny show mm-hmm. and he and Diane you know, have a have a real uh, humor to their voice. So it, it wasn't a huge stretch. It was, I mean, it's it's interesting making the transition. The the uh, you know, I'd been in some rooms where the people in the rooms and the lengths that they would go to to make other people in the room laugh were insane. Bob's Burgers and King of the Hill being the yeah. two examples. And the biggest change to me was that the type of humor not to grossly generalize, but based on the two dramas, dramedies that I've worked on, it's like comedy writers were much more willing to do a bit, to assume a persona and just drill it into the ground over (laughs) days and
2: weeks.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And drama writers on a dramedy are much more kind of clever, funny, (laughs) and into verbal humor and uh, not so into... A long con, or you know, <laughs> pretending that someone's just died, or <laughs> pretending that they have a feud with someone that is non-existent. Uh, so, you know, throwing water in someone's face sure. that doesn't really deserve it. Um, but I always, I mean, the yeah, there's a lot more plot, certainly, mm. a lot more story that you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, How did you find grappling with that? And had you written
1: hourlongs of your own? Well, that was.
3: How I transitioned into it was that I I wrote a pilot uh, when I was still at Bob's Burgers. And it was based on a, uh, because I was a journalist before I became uh, a writer, a TV writer, I think I've always been drawn to, you know, reportage and true stories. So there was this memoir about a guy who lived in um, Antarctica for several seasons working at the base down there. Uh, And it was called Big Dead Place, and I tried to adapt that for HBO and spent a lot of time thinking about what it would be like to be in Antarctica and what kinds of issues uh, to deal with. And then went out to attach an actor to it and had this whole, you know, spent months on a pitch and pitched it to James Gandolfini, And uh, I was scared shitless because, to me, The Sopranos was one of the greatest and also one of the funniest shows Mm -hmm. on TV ever. And I launched into this long, involved pitch with visuals and flashcards. And after about five minutes, he was like... Yeah, 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 I get, it, I, get it, I 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 get it, shut up, you know, basically shut the fuck up, leaving me not knowing whether he just said no or just what? said yes, uh, but he had just said yes, and so after that, uh, developed the script with him, and that, you know, both my love for the Sopranos and other hour-longs and also the... the Experience of writing that script convinced me that I I wanted to make the change to hour long.
1: Interesting. Do you still, when you get into a room for an hour long show,
3: do you still think, in a joke way, do you pitch jokes in the room? I just I just think. I mean, you know, I don't try. I see certain things differently. I think, and I'll say things. uh, You know, I I guess. I mean, I say things that make people laugh, which is a sign that you've just said something funny, right? Sure. Uh, that is what I pick up from you humans. That is how you judge. But then this year we added, I mean, but, you know, like I said, Rob is really funny, yeah. Diane is really funny, and crazy funny. Like they're funny, she's funny in a way that, that you know, I can't <laughs> compare to. And then this year we added on our staff, Two guys who were on an overall deal at Warner Brothers, whose previous credits are all half hour comedies. The guys who did uh, Shit Your Dad Says and a few other things. And they're way funnier than me in the room. I mean, they tell, they like to hold forth and tell stories (laughs) about crazy things that have happened and, and keep the room light. And I'm usually sitting in the corner kind of, kind of going, fuck, how does that, <laughs> what can we discover in this scene about the you know, <laughs> motives and sure. all that stuff? So, Do you tend to write funny? Um, the, f- I, the way I learned to write really was uh, back in the day when people wrote letters. I wrote letters to my brother when he went to college, mm-hmm. and I wrote letters to friends. To an older friend of mine who went off to college a year before me. And then when I was in college, I wrote letters. And that's
0: how. That's like an email on paper. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> and papers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and,
0: and the people I wrote to said, hey, you're
3: funny. And I didn't really think about it before that. But well, that's, that's actually why
1: I asked, because like you're obviously naturally funny, and you've worked in comedy where that is honed mm. so when you come out of it or even try to do something else does that voice carry over like is it a I, it, conscious I effort because to i'm make too
3: it's not conscious but it's yeah. just it's just there by this point i've right. done it enough that it's it would be harder for me to talk like you know to have a different voice and and also when i was at the newspaper one of the other writers who i really looked up to um and I was serious. I was really serious about nonfiction writing, and I was, you know, reading McPhee and all these other people, and and thinking that this was the highest calling, and, and trying to figure out how to do it better. And this guy who worked in the newspaper said, you know, you you really have a voice, and it comes through like you're not. Try, you don't have to try. Like if you have a voice, it's what comes through when you're not trying to have a voice.
1: Is that when you start writing for other people, then? Mm-hmm. you know
3: then you're trying to mimic right? so how do you how, do you remember that process from your earlier jobs well definitely on King of the Hill which had such a strong yeah. voice which makes uh, it easier in many ways yeah it's hard but also harder because Mike you know he had such a great ear still does have yeah. such a great ear for dialogue and the hardest thing about King of the Hill was he would by the time I joined the show season three he was back in Austin he, he didn't or you know, he just he wouldn't come in. He was doing his stuff from home, and he would do his takes from a studio in Austin. And the worst thing was when you wrote an episode and you had to listen to his takes, and he would just you know run through them, and he would go through the script. and He'd be like you know, do, he'd do three takes, he'd do three takes, and he'd come to a line and he'd go, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that." No. <laughs> <laughs> and he would either do something else which was better, or he would. It's like, well, I got to rewrite that now. And I've heard him say that he. You know, he hates lines that sound as if a room full of Harvard Lampoon guys spent two hours coming up with it. He likes stuff that is really smart and funny but doesn't feel sweaty like that. So, you know, trying to emulate his voice, which was also Greg Daniels' voice who co-created that show... um, it was really a challenge, but it was a, a great
1: challenge. That's really interesting. And and while we're on the subject, what advice can you guys give me? Uh, having run shows, having worked on shows, uh, I will open it to any of you. But we're going to get to all of you. But you, you've worked in rooms as well before. I have, but not a proper like oh.
5: every day and breaking story kind of room. I don't. I'm. I don't have any advice to give you. I when I first started. <laughs> when, when what I what do I, you, when have, you like when I work? first started? I didn't speak for like. A week and a half or two weeks because I was afraid I was going to get fired. Um, what was that on? Uh, that was on Ed. Okay. But it's usually like with any job I've ever had. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to offend someone or, yeah, so... So yes. how do you get out of so that's that? That's my advice. I, I, I am a blowhard, so eventually, like, at two weeks, I'll I need... It's all, it's all I have to up. start running my dumb mouth. And, yeah. and how does it go? So don't talk for two weeks is my advice. You, I mean, have you been <laughs> fired in that time? <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I, I've been fired up. No, I, I did not get fired. Yeah, what I'll say is because you know I re- I remember that experience of being on other people's shows and 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 spent forty years on other people's shows before yeah. I had my own. But now I have my own and I can as- I can I, I can answer the question from both sides of the table and this. You know, this will will hopefully be a little bit liberating. Which is, it, there's no advice that I can give you that's going to affect the outcome. Which mm-hmm. is, you're you're either going to be successful or you're not. And if I wrote a book that's like how to be successful in a writer's room, it wouldn't help you because ultimately it's going to be an aggregate of whether or not you can dial into the show or sort of speak the language. You know, there have been tremendously talented writers tremendously talented writers who just didn't work in yeah. in a certain climate and before I was even making management decisions I'd be like I can't believe that that person is leaving uh-huh. um, and then and then people who maybe are less talented but are much better in a room mm-hmm. you know and and ultimately uh, you know that the, the, the it, it's razor thin what I would say in terms about the, the, the biggest question especially especially if you're um, coming into a room for the first time or you're relatively green is when should I speak and um, I'll, I'll, Never for yeah. two weeks yeah. Never for two weeks I'll give the contrary advice which, it, which is the longer you don't speak The better the first thing that comes out of your mouth Has to be you know? like, So just know that going in Which is like Okay Ben's been silent we're waiting for it We're waiting for it It looks like he j- I know, Maybe tomorrow you know? Fuck this is going to be good so if you, if you say something stupid on the first day, then no, you, know, you get to lower the bar a little bit, and no one's going to fire you. Then I can be quiet yeah. for
1: two weeks. <laughs> Thank God he's not talking. Yeah. That's actually great advice. Uh, Noel, you've been in, as I say, a bunch of rooms with some heavy hitters, too, and people who have done a lot of TV and people who have not done a lot of TV, which I think must have been interesting. But what have you picked up in these rooms that you kind of bring with you as you go through?
4: Um... It's in, uh, a lot of stuff really uh, one of my favorite people I've ever worked for on Masters of Sex and also I was her assistant on Lone Star before that is Amy Lipman mm-hmm. and she is a great person and a great showrunner and just, just wildly talented and she um, every time I pitch something especially on my episodes would say I'm trying to figure out if that's better than what we have or a lateral move uh, if it's better or lateral you can have it and if it's worse then I get it or the <laughs> rumor we throw at you know the showrunners and I always thought that was just like a very nice way of letting someone have some ownership over their episode um, I am a bit of a blowhard as well and I'm very very opinionated and 100% believe in everything I pitch and then if someone hates it uh, if I'm crazy about it I'll pitch it one more time and then when it becomes apparent that they really 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 hate it I'll pitch again. I just am constant like I'm <laughs> able to believe in anything profoundly for a minute and a half <laughs> and uh, I don't know I'm a huge fan also of complimenting other people's ideas when somebody else has a great idea I love to scream oh that's awesome we have to do that um, and I'm also uh, on my last show Marco Polo this is I believe this is good advice, even though it's not clever advice. Uh, Liz Sarnoff would always bring donuts and once hired a masseuse to work on all of us. And I would follow that woman into war.
2: Yeah.
1: Showrunners listening. You can make a lot of friends. You can build an army.
4: Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah. So, I don't know. There's also, I'm a big believer in... Getting to know everybody a bit outside of the room and becoming comfortable because if not, I'm a bit nervous. Especially, you know, when you're not upper level, I get very nervous. So that's how I that's, become that's comfortable all, enough to yeah. repitch terrible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's all
1: good stuff, uh, Kit. Uh, you know, you've been in these animation rooms, which is where I'm headed. So I'm curious to know. And again, uh, tell us about the Bob's Burgers room. Uh, I, in my head it's like the Simpsons room Where it's imagine, 25 people Imagine a
3: bunker <laughs> Just uh, the funniest people no, competing for jobs. Uh, so you mean like Yeah it's a fair Animated shows generally have large staffs yeah. Because uh, unlike other shows You often follow your episode through And doing some of the production So you're out of the room sometimes Working on an edit Or recording a pickup for somebody um, So they're big staffs Uh, you often break up into smaller rooms to, you know, break stories or punch or fix that. How big was that room when you were in it? Uh, I would say maybe 14 writers, but many of them teens. So Um,
0: 14
3: humans. Yeah. uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) More or less. Um, (laughs) If I can't, the rules, the things that I, I mean, which you probably know by now, not rules, but it seems really basic, but one of the things I learned early was pitch fixes, don't pitch problems, uh, and related to that, unless you can't help it and you're super talented in everything else, don't be the one that the rest of the writers call the logic cop. That's not a compliment to be that person. Um, also, when uh, often in a room, you're going over a story and, and someone will be pitching it and say... Oh, and there, there was this great joke, or there was this great idea, or this great line. Don't be the person who says, "Yeah, that was mine," when it was yours. <laughs> yes. Like, let it just know that it was yours, and then let others either well, that's remember or not. why I have a writing part. Yeah, that's, that's that's that very weird.
2: effective.
3: <laughs> Uh, and precede everything you pitch with Not this, but what if Because uh, then you're immediately Indemnified from the shittiest
2: pitches Of all
1: That's actually that's all great practical stuff That I think we probably don't hear enough on these panels But yeah, I've, I think any of us who have been in any room Have encountered all those yeah. um, I want to ask you guys also Because I think you've all worked on shows that are starting up um, What that is like Whether it's your show or not your show And if it's not your show What is your role in Starting to build that show.
5: I, I guess we're talking about. I've only gotten, I've only joined stabs that were in their first year, mm-hmm. um, because I've never wanted to be the person. And if you're lucky enough to get on a show that goes more than one year, there's always that one person who comes in with great pitches that you go, "We tried that last year, and <laughs> the showrunner hated it." So don't. Cool. I never want to be that guy, so I like being first in. And uh, I I think the most important thing you can do is come in with as many pitches. Just come in with as many ideas as you can and be married to none of them. Because whoever created that show really, they might not even know it, but they do have a sense of where they want that show to go, I feel. And uh, if you can help them get there, that's great. But if not... That's fine too, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. But yeah, coming in with the ideas. Yeah, guns blazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
5: Damon. But don't talk for two weeks. Don't sure. no. <laughs> Do that. It's amazing, don't but tell those two ideas weeks. For
1: two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Damon, I would imagine the second season of Leftovers, in many ways, felt like A starting over. You know, you guys told a very complete story in that first season. How was the second season approached?
0: Um. I think that the larger issue um, uh, for the second season of the show which is I'm, I'm sure this has happened before in television but i'm I'm not immediately aware of what it is is that there there was source material for the first season and then nothing. So, so we, um, and Tom Parada uh, is not just an executive producer on the show in name only. He's very involved in the creative and was there a lot over the course of the first season and has been there a lot over the course of the second season. So it's, he created this thing. He wrote a novel that was supposed to be a novel. Like, it wasn't going to be, you know, the first book in a series of books. It's not um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or um, or, or Game of Thrones um, it's, It was over yeah. And so when, when he and I first met And started talking about the pilot I think that our thinking was always like the, book, the novel was going to be the first season of the show Because his ending for the novel Felt like a season finale in many ways And we were going to, uh, we were going to Enhance it and create character Relationships and, and, and world build So that we could justify Doing ten hours of it without Hopefully it feeling like it was filler but but beyond that point, we didn't really have a plan for what a second season was going to be, which was very liberating for me because when you work on a serialized mythological show like, you know... Um, and hmm. I could Pick could, one out could, of I a hat a You know um, you, you have to constantly be As you're building the track Saying like what's 50 yeah. miles up, up the road And are we going to go into a mountain And if we are we better start s- Send out the demolitions team To blow up a tunnel through that mountain Or things aren't going to go well season 3 But um, the <laughs> uh, the, um, the overall uh, For the leftovers it was like Oh we're, we're much more comfortable taking it one season at a time so, between the first and second seasons, we're like, if you were to write another novel that, that where all we were really married to was it takes place in the same uh, world where two percent of the world's population mysteriously vanished, like, go, what would that be? Should we just follow the same people that we were with in the first season and it's just more of them? And the, um, should we just now be in an entirely new place with new people? Like, um. Uh, could, could we get away with that? Um, and we are both huge fans of the wire. We started talking about the second season of the wire, which um, for me, on a binge, you know when i when I visited the wire I watched uh, I, I didn't I, I wasn't watching it while I was on the air. Um, uh, I was just completely and totally amazed by the second season of the wire and only after the fact were people like you like the second season of the wire It's like, <laughs> but do you understand the boldness of what they did there like the idea that they said, The second season is going to be about these guys at the dock and, you know, the people who you really love the most in the first season with the exception of probably Stringer are all going to be background players mm-hmm. like they might not even be in episodes at all and if they are they're they're in one or two scenes I thought that that was amazing and it was David Simon basically throwing the gauntlet down and saying this story is not about mm-hmm. um just one thing it's about the city of Baltimore and the city of Baltimore is about the American experience and mm-hmm. um and and I thought that that was awesome so it was like if we could do anything what will we do and let's make no apologies for what the first season of the show was I I You know, I mean, I I feel like to completely and totally throw it all out would have been to say that didn't work. I think that a lot of things about the first season worked incredibly well um, and some things not so well. That's what the first season of television is, is, you know, you go back and you watch the, the first six episodes of Seinfeld and it's kind of amazing. Like what it is But you can actually see The DNA of everything That it was going to become And this isn't to say we, we, We should all aspire To be writing Seinfeld But the Simpsons even You know like Um Uh, Not just the way that the characters look, But the way that the comedy worked And you could see it starting uh, to become itself So Mm -hmm. Tom and I And uh, and we convened a a great writer's room Um, Spent a lot of time in the room Mm -hmm. On the leftovers I love the room, it's my favorite part of the job Um, My least favorite part of the job Happens outside the room But I love, um, you know um, being with uh, the other writers, and although I am the you know the showrunner, the more I feel like the boss, the less fun I have. And so our room runs a lot like the movie Twelve Angry Men, you know, where you, we have to we have to reach consensus, um, and if not a unanimous consensus, and, um, and 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 as painful as that is, um, you know, juror number eight. Like, uh, we'll hold out And we'll all gang up on them And in order to convince them We have to make the story better um, and, I, and, I, and I love it when it happens that way And thank God for Parada Who you know wrote a genre novel In a non-genre way But if he wasn't there all sorts of crazy shit would be happening on the leftovers, and, I, um, and it would be heavily serialized and densely mythological and 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 strange. And um, and I I like I like restrictions. I think like it's 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 very useful to walk into walls on occasion and go, oh, this is. I feel safe. I know where this is. Absolutely, the parameters help yeah. many times. But I, uh, I, yeah. I all this by way of saying, I just I if you let. I, if you like the first season of the show, I have every expectation that you'll like the second season. And if you didn't like the first season of the show, I have every expectation that you won't like the second season (laughs) that said, the second season is not an apology or a reboot or a radical new direction. It's just an, it's just the same show in a different geographical location, which I think is really interesting. It was interesting to us. Well, and I I was going to follow
1: up on that. So we know you guys moved to Texas for the second season. Um, was that and this story Without getting into the specifics Because I know like it's premiering soon um, Was that decided
0: before you Convened the room? Uh, was it decided between You and Tom? Yeah, more or less I mean uh, and, and then we have an, uh, 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 There's another writer, Jacqueline Hoyt Who was on, she's the, really the only other Writer who came over from the first season We had a writer's assistant who was promoted to hmm. staff Writer, but You know, between Tom and Jackie and myself, there was fundamental excitement around that idea. And then we tried it out on HBO and said, what if the second what what if this was the second season premiere of of the show? Um, Would that be exciting to you? Because this is the direction because we tried uh, We, you know, um, that's what our gut told us was the right way to go. But we started from a place of second season of the show kind of picks up. Three or four months later, or a minute later after the first season of the show, and it's going to be more of the same. It's going to, you know, which is, by the way, not a bad thing. It's like, I'll, you know, Friday Night Lights, I will watch more of the same. And then, you know, and then when it became Easto and you're like, holy shit, but it's same, same show. Yeah. I mean, um, but uh, should we do that in this case? Should there even be a second season of the show? I'm a firm believer in, like, if you're not passionate about telling the story, then just kind of stop. Telling the story and say I learned this and I learned that But I'm not going to subject <laughs> viewers to Something that I'm not passionate about So sure. um, first you have to come up with an idea That you feel warrants um, a second season And in a world where uh, it's, it's not a traditional franchise show mm-hmm. You know, I do think like I celebrate um, uh, Matt Weiner for saying uh, Mad Men is ending now like um, I would continue to watch Mad Men and um, I, I think it went out on top um, and same for Vince Gilligan with Breaking Bad which is that show can be about the condition of being a meth dealer mm-hmm. in Al- Albuquerque Ad infinitum, but what made it exciting was we knew that it was coming to a conclusion. So well, and look, you guys did that too, and we've
1: talked about this in the past.
0: But on Lost, it's when you picked an ending, I feel like you were all invigorated by it. Sure, and and, you know stories want to end. Stories want to end. Like that's their, you know, that is their their natural uh, um, life cycles.
1: Yeah, Uh, and I want to jump over here to Kit for a minute to talk about uh, sitcoms because sitcoms are built not to end,
3: right. Nobody changes, nobody learns anything. Yeah, yeah you can so, kind of reset after Can you talk about
1: contending with that?
3: Uh, well, I guess I, I didn't... Since I started there, I didn't really know the other world mm. of sort of longer arc stories. I didn't have something to compare it to. Um, and I didn't stay... I tend to, like cut and run when a show starts to I I just you know I can't sit still that much I worked eight seasons which was crazy on King of the Hill and that was a show uh, the only show that I've worked on where I joined a show that was Mm -hmm. in progress and I joined as a fan I like loved the show and then started to work on it and started to hate it because I worked on it yeah. and realized that, you know, I thought I thought it was just harder for me to find it funny as a casual viewer because it was the thing that I was trying to make funnier and funnier. Um, that was a harder process for me. Like, I, shows always get better. Actually, maybe it's because I leave that they get better, but it always seems like they're better once I leave. Like, Bob's, <laughs> Bob's was so much funnier when I didn't have to, go in and work there every sure. day and I could just enjoy it well, as a fan. Well you have fan. that distance from it and yeah, sure yeah. it goes a long way. But I mean the other thing I mean just keeping a show going if you have rich characters mm-hmm. and writers uh, I think it really helps if your writers have time to have a life and be experiencing things and discovering new things out in their own lives Have you seen both sides, Have you been in rooms that, where you get both sides of that? Uh I've been pretty lucky. I haven't worked on the classic Dawn Patrol kind of show where everybody goes home, you know, where you just know you're going to eat dinner every single night. But I've I've worked on shows that have their share of late nights, and I always admired a show like Everybody Loves Raymond, which I think was, you know, it's one of my favorite shows ever. And those guys always went home for dinner because the guy who created it said you have to have a life, you have to be doing what the show's about. Yeah.
1: Go yeah. get material. Yeah.
3: But it is, you know, the fear of, oh, I'm repeating myself or I'm, yeah. I'm doing something that some other show has done, which I hate that mm-hmm. feeling. And some writers, I think, I, I think there are some cultures on a show where it's like, oh, yeah, it worked on that other show. Let's do a version of that. For me, I'd rather try to come up with something, you know, that you haven't seen before. That, to me, is the burden. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that and that happens in the room, right? Like that happens when you yeah. get good brains
3: together. Yeah, you can and, come and, up with something. Yeah, and when you kind of have an accepted, you sort of have an agreement, like your jury, your Twelve Angry Men, the sort of unspoken agreement that you know, uh, if if we've seen something before, are we going to call that out and right. call bullshit on it, or are we gonna, or are we going to try to f- find a way to spin it slightly, you know, under the theory that there are no new ideas or no new. Characters or whatever, um, but yeah, it's kind of a uh, by mutual consent yeah. that you do that. I imagine on King of the Hill. I mean, you're there for eight years. How long did the show go? 11, 12 uh, years, something like that. You know, it went like ten, and then it went down for a season. Then it came right. back. Yeah. I think. I think maybe it did twelve or thirteen. But generating new ideas for a show like that,
1: you know, it had to be that thing of well, that we did that in season three. So how do we find a new I mean yeah, sort of like but you had a phase. really
3: I mean for a, for a comedy, it had a large cast yeah. of characters okay. that you could draw on and really eccentric characters and a sort of you know suburban small town kind of perspective that could find small ideas and make them larger or large enough for the king of the Hill world mm-hmm. so that helped
1: I, I imagine it also helped um, that it's not such a it wasn't such a joke driven show.
3: It was no, I mean to me was really oddly enough it. I always thought of it as a fan as one of the realest shows on TV totally. even though it was a cartoon yeah. and even the even the style of animation the sti- the the character drawings that Mike Judge did were the kind that most animators hated because they were too plain and too simple and too stiff but i I thought that was great. I thought that was one of the best things about the show
1: it was we've talked about the show in the past um, with Greg and other people, just yeah. like the tone too is could only be done animated because it was too real to be done live action
3: yeah, well, yeah, and there was a comfort with long silences yeah. and awkward moments that I think uh, Somehow we're easier to pull off With animation, so. for sure yeah. Certainly not stuff you do with a studio audience On a show you don't, you don't go for you know, It's like three laughs a page You don't go like, let's go three pages without a laugh This time, guys, that'll be fun for the studio audience
1: um, Alright, I want to come back in a minute But Noel, I do want to touch on Being there for the First year of a show Or even the first few months of a show Which can be a very difficult learning process Not just for the staff But for the showrunner You know, you've been in those rooms. What were some of the challenges that were faced, and what were some of the things that were realized that made things easier going forward? Do you remember?
4: Um, Well, I do feel like all the rooms I've gone into, somebody's come in with, you know, they make you, when you're pitching, do the series documents and like the series Bibles and stuff. So everyone's always come in with a really strong idea then you realize something in the second episode doesn't work, and then the rest of it is just like kindling. There's no reason to have done all of that uh, to some extent anyway. Um, Or you realize what happens in like the eighth episode should probably happen in the second episode. Um, But uh, I think the hardest thing has been to touch on a bit what uh, Damon talked about is sort of limitations when this got, like I've gone on a couple of second season shows and it's amazing. It's like, oh everyone loves the actors and they all know each <laughs> other's names and it's just like eating dinner at your best friend's house or something. It's great. Um on a first season like there's this neurological there study with architecture students where if they're if a they hook them all up to electrodes and we're like, draw the most beautiful house you can and uh nothing was really generated and then they gave them limitations, draw the most beautiful house you can with like two chimneys and two round windows and a red door. And it's actually like by virtue of limitations that people are able to become more creative and to find ways around the limitations and stuff. And to some extent, I think it's the same with everything. Like, You know when you go to the Cheesecake Factory and the menu is like 40 pages long? And you're like, I can't pick from this. This is insane. Um, so yeah, by season two, hopefully, you know what you're trying to achieve and stuff. Um, Another thing I've had actually recently is um, these straight-to-order series now that go straight to 13 episodes, and I think the showrunners are always like, oh, man, this is awesome. I get to skip over that whole thing, and then, but when you do a pilot, you get many months to cast it and hire a crew and do everything and put it all together, and then you start shooting. So they're doing that at the same time as running, especially in cable, what's now like a 20-week room. Yeah. And so they barely ever get to be in the room, and it's uh, it's something of a flawed system. Mm-hmm. And also, like they inevitably start shooting when you're almost done writing, so you don't even know what the actors look like. So I think there's a lot of rewriting that has to happen after right. that. And so uh, that's a drag. Have, uh, you the- Have you seen anyone
1: contend with that successfully? Really make it work?
4: I'm trying to think. Uh, I've actually only been on one show like yeah, that. I guess that's true. Um, and, and there were uh, was It was messy. Manhattan And it wasn't messy, it was just a lot of work It was just so much work yeah. And um, yeah, I, I don't know I think that there's a flaw in that system But yeah, right. that has been my experience That's
1: Very interesting um, Alright, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for your questions Do you guys have questions? Yeah. Yes? Alright, here's what I want you to do I'm going to ask them another question That might take a little bit of time uh, But yeah, if you have questions, start lining up Meanwhile, I want to ask you guys about uh, pitching uh, have you all pitched original material or takes on material? You've all been a part of that. Mm-hmm. What is your pitching style? How do you do it? What are you comfortable with? What has proven successful for you? Et cetera. Anyone who wants to jump in?
5: I, I've i only pitched a couple of things. One, uh, uh, It was a property that was brought to me and... Uh, I didn't even know if I wanted to do it, but it was the first thing that had been brought to me, so I agreed to do it, and I came up with this pitch, and I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, so I went in to pitch it to the studio, and I, I it was like an out-of-body experience. I felt like I was a person, and my head was a car, and my eyes were the windshields, and I watched a piece of spit fly out of my mouth and go by the executive as I was pitching it, Yeah, but I pitched it, and I I went through, and I and I I went in. I was like, I don't know, I don't want to go in with notes. I just want to wing it and just make it a conversation, which was a terrible idea. (laughs) Take notes, take take things to refer to, and then so there was that pitch. And uh, wait, let me stop you there for a second. Yeah, Um, it was a terrible
1: idea because did you find yourself not knowing what to say
5: next? No, I just spy, I just spun out of control. It was like a, a runaway train wreck and uh, like a, the, I got a call from my agent a couple of hours later. He's like, I don't. They didn't use the term shit the bed, but <laughs> it so, they said you were very nervous. And uh, but they they actually bought it. Uh, someone else I think came in behind me and was like, Look, that don't worry about the idiot. Here's <laughs> what's good about it. Uh, the, the, the studio bought it. The network did not. But the thing I did learn from it is. Uh, you have to do it so even if your first time is a is a, is a colossal failure do it and push yourself out of there and, and and do something uncomfortable and learn from it and then the next time I went the next time I had to pitch something I was more I was also more comfortable with the material mm. and um I knew what I wanted to do with it and I I went in and with stuff written and was a lot more calm and uh That went well too Until it didn't go But Right
1: Did you still keep it Conversational In that second time The second time Or were you on a script Like some people do No
5: the second time um, Actually uh, I think I I responded to the material More Which is the other thing To learn If, If you really Don't love the material Don't Don't do it Unless it's I mean, you know, obviously, unless the money is really good, right? If you're not passionate about it, don't do it. Um, but there's
1: also, and maybe this is the wrong lesson. <laughs> it's a night for wrong lessons, but maybe it's the wrong lesson to take from that first pitch, which is, like, a good idea is, you know, indelible. It's, if it either checks a box or if they can get excited about just the idea, no matter how bad your pitch was, Yeah, they're going to buy it.
5: Yeah, it was an okay, it was it was a decent idea. So, they like they bought the they bought the idea. They didn't necessarily buy Chris Dingus. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, I guess but that's the other At part the end of, it, of the day. Right? Yeah.
0: I, I mean, what 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 I'll say is obviously it's very dependent on what you're pitching and the and the first and most important thing other than knowing who you're pitching to and and it, it, it's, it's kind of getting a sense of um, of if, if I'm only talking for five minutes, how should I spend those five minutes? And and then if you get through the five minutes, then it can become a conversation. But I think like for me, it's 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 always an it's always less is more. You know, the 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 longer you talk, the more likely it is that you're going to say something fucking really stupid and 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 turn them off. So, uh, but but ultimately. And this is for 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 me in terms of the pitches that I respond to, but also when I've had success in pitches versus failure is ultimately like they're really hiring you. Mm-hmm. Your take on the material is, is is secondary because if a studio is hiring you to develop something, let's let's say you're coming in and 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 this is ground zero for an idea that they've never even heard before and you i have a movie idea or i have a tv show idea the the only way that you can get them excited about it is to give them some sense of ownership right out of the gate you know so it's sort of like i don't know what it is you guys are trying to do you know but this is a, this is what i think would be cool and if you activate them then you roll with them but if they don't have any sense of ownership then you know like ult- ultimately an exe- a television executive or a movie executive is going to feel relatively inert if they're not being Creative and if you can activate their creativity somehow, because um, they got to where they they are for um, f- for a variety of reasons, probably because they're smart and talented and political. Maybe they uh, maybe they want to write as well. Maybe they don't want to write or they have a talent to work with writers. But I think that that's the key is you know look at them, read the room, understand, and try to activate them creatively, and th- then you'll do well. If you're not activating them creatively, you're not going to get hired. That's great, uh, Noel. What's been your
1: pitching experience?
4: Um, I'm in the middle of doing it right now for the first time because right oh, really? now is sort of the network yeah. pitching season and uh, it's I, I find it horrific mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's uh, I'm doing two a comedy and a drama right now and what
1: phase are you in?
4: Um, who are you uh, pitching? I'm pitching to one the drama I'm still doing studios we have a studio on the the drama's kind of a last minute thing that happened but um, and then a studio bought the comedy and then we're going right. to networks um, it's so strange to me First of all I uh, thought it was like The writing of the document There's this document You'll work on it For six months Just like this, this Four page thing That you'll put all of your Hopes and dreams into And uh, you'll hate it Very much In the end And I thought it was Like a school paper So I was trying to be Impressive Like a uh, uh, the drama my first page is like an Involved journal of how I felt During September 11th And that's not the vibe you want <laughs> to <you laughs> give off You want to be like entertaining and charming When you go into these
5: things Was that the comedy? That was <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> um And It's and Basically it's like uh, I hate it Because you're thinking this is why I didn't become an actor So I could just quietly write in a corner And then hopefully impress somebody And the artifice involved Like you write out this casual script that's like, hey guys, this show means a lot to me because I'm really focused on what it means to be a good person. And um, you get produced, like I just learned all of this. I never actually knew how TV worked. Uh, you get these producers and they think you're funny and laugh and so then you go to the studio with the producers and they have the producers have to hear it again and they're pretending to laugh because they're sick <laughs> of these jokes already while you're doing it to the studio. And then they all sign off and like it. So then you go to the network with the studio and the producers who are all pretending to laugh about these jokes that you've heard a million times before. And they're all like, oh, my God, isn't she droll? And you just feel like the biggest idiot... and it's literally a just like pantomime. You're all putting on, just hoping to please these like four people who don't crack a smile for a large part of it. So I, I find it absolutely terrifying. Um, and I really wish I could just write in a corner and turn something in, right. and just get money. So how do you how, how do you
1: rally yourself to get through these pitches?
4: Um, between the first and second pitch, at one point, uh, the producers took me for a glass of wine. At Sugarfish Because nice. I think they sensed That I needed it But also The nice thing is After a certain point You've done it The exact same little act For so many yeah. people That you don't care anymore You're like a Baby June from Gypsy Rosalie Just put like High kicking in the air Doing anything To just please the people That you're talking to Yeah So It's great <laughs> It's a
1: nightmare It's a fucking nightmare Um Kid What has been your Pitching
3: experience Uh Unenjoyable, to say the least. <laughs> um, I would recommend attaching Jim Gandolfini to an idea yeah. that seems to work. I was actually I to was work thinking about if point. I was going to bring
1: this up. Like, bring yeah. an actor into a pitch yeah. goes a
3: long way. It it sure did. Um, it also helped. Uh, it's just for me, it's hard to come up with the idea that I want to commit, uh, you know, five years mm-hmm. of my life to. Um, that was one of the few. And I think part of what made it successful... I mean, uh, seriously, I could have said anything with Jim Gandolfini sitting there, who was on a huge you know, overall deal at HBO. That They really didn't care what I said, but I think what convinced him and what convinced the owners, the people who had the rights to the book and they were shopping it around, was, uh, like you were saying, like Damon was saying, a very simple kind of sense of how I connected to the material and how I, to me... The story of this guy and of the people that he worked with down at McMurdo—it um, just—it I was thinking a lot about Five Easy Pieces. I don't know why, but I, I was. I had just seen her. No, I had just read the screenplay for some reason, and I was a big fan of the movie. And I'd read it, and I just felt like, well, this is what happens after that movie ends. After he gets in that truck and leaves Karen Black, you know, stranded at the at the cafe at the gas station. A guy like him would eventually make his way down to Antarctica. It's like where all the weirdos, eventually the misfits, wind up. And I think that that really was the thing that I was interested in, and that made them interested in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't like it. Uh, did I say it already? Let me. Yeah, I don't like it. I one pitch. The most memorable of the bad pitches was uh, I pitched what was basically a comedic version of The Good Wife, but years before The Good Wife was on, but after all of the you know, politicians humiliating themselves, after Spitzer had had his big you know, press conference, and I, I just again imagined, okay, what's that limo ride like after that press conference with him and his wife? you know, What is the deal that you strike with your wife? to keep that together. And I pitched a comedic version of that and the response from the net, from the studio I think it was before we went to network was wow, that was detailed. <laughs> and that was for a comedic, you know, that was for a comedy and I did not take it as a compliment. And it was just it was way too detailed. I should have, you know, I should have stopped much earlier in that pitch than I did. Well and part of that is sort of like Damon was saying, is like engaging the people you're pitching to so yeah. they have an investment to Yeah, it. I think that's, that's great advice. Uh, <laughs> but but now I would much rather I, I my approach now is I'm not interested in pitching. I would much rather write something on spec and just I've been hearing that out. a lot. Um, is it working for people? Uh, i don 't know i'm not mm, the people i 'm surrounded by are mostly doing the traditional kind of yeah. pitching um, yeah i don 't know right. i'm curious right in listeners <laughs> um, all right let 's get some of your
1: questions Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask how you guys balance um, quality and quantity in your work, um, especially if you 're starting on a new show or something and they're one of the things you can 't really simulate as a you know if i'm if i don't finish my spec script that I'm working on on my own. I'm going to be mad at myself, but I'm. But that's it. And if you don't meet a deadline when you're in a room, a lot worse things happen, right? So how do you get in a mindset where you can do good work? You know, write a forty-five page script in this certain amount of time, but also be confident in it, in its, in its quality.
0: Well, that that's the job, right? Yeah. yeah. Um,
5: <laughs> I, I
0: mean, I. I I I I say this, you know, with with no sense of um, uh, of comedic intent, but I I I had to accept a long time ago that that the idea of like this is qualitatively exactly where I want it to be. It's time to move on. Was never ever going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it just and it 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 was very and the, and what made that apparent was entering into a professional. Um, environment where there were deadlines but it was basically like oh they're gonna sh- they're gonna shoot that it's not ready and they're going to shoot that um, and I can be super precious about it or I can move on to the next thing and it, it just happened as a um, I was not a prolific writer before I became a professional writer and I was known for what I think now is like the biggest mistake that any aspiring writer can make which is you just completely and totally lock down on one piece of material because you convince yourself that it can qualitatively reach this point of you know, it is done, it is awesome now I have come across writers who are like, this is done and it is awesome and 100% of the time it's (laughs) shit, you know, like maybe, I'm sure that you're out there and you've written something awesome and I'm not telling you that you're a piece of shit right. I'm just telling you That like the writers that I Respond to and um Are awesome like kind of feel Like I, I need to keep going with this I haven't reached that point of like being Happy with it and so um uh, for a network show like Lost where we did 25 hours of that show over the course of 10 months um, not wrote them but pr- produced yeah. them they existed and now I do 10 hours of leftovers in exactly the same amount of time and I'm not here to tell you that those 10 hours are qualitatively better than the 25 it's just that's the time that we have to make the, that, that television show. Is your staff about the same size? Mm, it's smaller yeah. um, for sure but I just think like there doesn't seem to be, in my opinion, any correlation between um, between quality and time. The quality is basically derived by the talent behind you know behind the ca- behind and in front of the camera in the case of television, and I think that there are amazing. Uh, Novelists who uh, um, who write a lot of stuff and amazing novelists who write one book like every five years and um, and it's uh, they they probably all have very similar feelings to the ones that you and I have which are this isn't good enough yet Um, I'm going to keep pounding on it if you have a if you
5: have a supportive room too I which I've been lucky most of the shows I've had the rooms very supportive and the people running it are supportive I try to get it. On time to a point where I'm not embarrassed for supportive people to look at it. Mm. Who will then make it help you make it better? It's just Yeah, I just don't want to... Yeah, just the least embarrassing version <laughs> of 50 pages is what I shoot for. On time. Yeah, that's great. Yeah.
4: Um, I have just a thing about that, which is it's a weird thing I've noticed because I also was not terribly prolific until I started working. And I've noticed a strange thing, which is that Whenever your deadline is, that's how long it actually takes to write a script. Like, if I have two months, it literally takes me every day of that two months. And if I have five days, that is how long it takes me. I I don't know why, but it'll just fill up whatever time you have, which is why on your own, if you have all the time in the world, you might not get a lot done. Uh, Also, as uh, not a showrunner, there's a lot of times where I write something and... And you also get rewritten a lot. Like it's no secret, you get rewritten a lot by the showrunner when you're not running it. And I'm really happy if a scene or even like a few lines that I wrote that I'm actually proud of and love make it up there. And they're gonna do what they want to with it at the end of the day, and they're the ones who are gonna get like praised or shit on, not you. So that's the nice thing about not being the boss. But that's
1: (laughs) that's a tough balance too, uh, because you want to do your best work knowing that. 15% of it may make the final project.
4: You know, I uh, yes. And also you'll work with some showrunners who make you look so good and uh, rewrite some scenes and you're like, oh man, I'm going to get like an Emmy. (laughs) Um, And some who you're like, well, how could you do that to me? And I remember one, I've been in both of those situations and once i fought so hard on something because I'm a little obnoxious and the showrunner, Like put his hand on my shoulder and was like, at the end of the day it's just a matter of opinion, and my opinion wins, because I'm the boss. (laughs) And I was like, and you know, it's true.
1: (laughs) When you're working on your own pilots, and you are uh, working on the future episodes and future seasons, how do you tell what's a good thing to show where the show can go, or how much is too much, and that's going to get thrown out later, and you're just wasting
3: your time? These guys should talk about that, because I don't like to write pilots, so
1: <laughs> yeah. In, in putting together that
0: pitch, uh, how much is too much? How much is enough? It's you know, it's the classic "Are you making it up as you go along?" question, which is when when people when people ask you that question, "Are you making it up as you go along?" They want the answer to be no. Like they want you to have complete and utter confidence in um, in 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 your creative plan. At the same time, you also have to demonstrate, but. But once the plan fails, I have to be able to come up with a new plan. And if you don't acknowledge that there's a high likelihood, especially after a pilot or in the first season of a show, I mean, the the, the streets are littered with with failed first and second episodes that just would not adapt. And you know, one of my favorite stories, and I, I won't tell well because I was in, I was at ABC at the time. But um, both Desperate and Lost, Desperate Housewives and Lost, had very different genesis. But the other show that that came along that year in 2004 was Grey's Anatomy and they almost completely and totally retooled that pilot and Shonda spent a lot of time in the editing room and I think there was maybe even some recasting and it became mid-season but when it arrived it was this completely and totally confident um, thing where you basically go oh it's just another doctor show and yet it was this and you know essentially it was Shonda's brand I mean what happened I think was her voice was allowed to come through and I think that ultimately that's what's most important in terms of pilot writing is this idea of like I'm hearing right now, you know, uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in this room, but the show that I just think completely is uh, captivating my imagination is Mr. Robot that came along this summer is amazing, and I'm listening to Sam Esmail, is starting to talk about the show, he's going on uh, a podcast, etc. He did a great interview uh, with Andy Greenwald on Grantland, uh, uh, if you are curious about Mr. Robot, but essentially he's talking about this very thing in depth which is, oh, he wrote a, um, a feature and, and he cannibalized The feature, and basically the first act Of the feature, you know, became the, fir- the first season of Mr. Robot And so he's basically like, I've got at least Like, three, possibly four more seasons Just to basically, like, execute the feature, the, the feature Assuming, you know, assuming everything Works out, but there's a, there's a huge Confidence in voice, I mean, when I Saw the pilot for Mr. Robot, I was basically like oh, I can just hear, I can hear This show, this is different, and I think that's more important than anything else, this idea of like you know I have the story you know I know what season two or season three or season four is going to be it's, it's great to kind of to, to kind of say that and, and maybe even mean it, but what's more important is that, you're, that you know that your voice is pure and that you don't allow it to get watered down by the development process because once you start writing the show for someone else, um, they don't know what they want um, you're probably going to get messed up yeah. hey
1: everyone just wondering. Before you had any real success in the industry, what were like the one or two things that you feel really led you to your first job writing
2: for television?
1: I'm going to um, hone this question a little bit um, to ask, what is the first thing you got paid to write and how did that
5: come about? The first thing in television you got paid to write. Mm,
2: yeah.
5: uh, mine was an episode of Ed after I got staffed. Um, really? Were you staffed off a of spec? No, I actually I did twice. I, I did what everyone used to tell you not to do, and I wrote a spec for the show that I was an assistant on. And the first time it was a show called Now and Again,
2: mm-hmm.
5: uh, which was a Glenn Caren show. I wrote a it was the first thing it was the first spec I'd ever written, and I wrote that. And uh, if it had gotten picked up, they'd offered me a staff job, and it did not get picked up. So I went to Ed, and I sort of. Did the same thing. The, the, the guys who created Rob Burnett and John Beckerman who created the show came to me one day because everyone was sort of doing writing an Ed Beck, all the assistants, and they said, are you going to do one and slide it under the door? And so I did that, and they, they staffed me, and nice. I was very lucky. Yeah. don't. Apparently you're not supposed to do that.
1: So don't. <laughs> and yet almost every story we hear is...
5: Yeah.
0: That's how it happened. Yeah. Uh, Damon. Yeah, it, it, uh, I was just telling Kit... <laughs> Uh, backstage, because we, we share a, uh, an attorney, and uh, um, that sounds more salacious than
2: it. uh, But
1: uh, It's the strongest no. friendship you can have in Los Angeles. It's
0: ex- sharing an attorney. Pass him back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. It's, a, it's exactly the same story, uh, which is I was a writer's assistant on a show, um, and uh, I was in the right place at the right time, wrote a spec. Of the show that I was on. What show was um, it? It was called Wasteland. Yes. It was. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, It was. Damon right. tells it this was, whole story. I think the yeah. first time you were on here, yeah. it's, it's actually a great story. But yeah, but it was right place, right time, and then I had the right, you know, and cool. it, I think that the standards were probably much less exacting because they just needed anything to shoot, and I had fifty pages, right. and with, mm-hmm. the, with properly formatted. <laughs> <Yeah. you know, laughs> Like and then and then suddenly I was a writer and um, I'll be forever grateful to Julie Pleck and uh, and Kevin for giving me my my break.
4: Um I uh, similar story. Although I had so many like there's these people who came here young and started as writers. I've had so many jobs. I've temped for like various years at a time in yes. my life. Uh, but I was a writer's assistant, um, first I was an agency assistant, then I was a writer's assistant on like three shows, and then uh, I was the assistant to the showrunner on Awake during the pilot, and uh, because I was the only one in the room, mm-hmm. he just talked to me a lot about stuff, and more talked at me than <laughs> to me, but I just like, gave a lot of feedback and was so intricately involved at that time that I uh, got the staff writer job.
3: And I was a a reporter at the Seattle Times, and I got hired to work on a season of Bill Nye, the Science Guy. uh, Having applied for the job, but um, having previous to that, with no... I I really wasn't angling for it. I wrote a feature story about Bill Nye, the Science Guy, and the producers of the show said, we think you kind of get the voice of the show. Would you like to apply? Not would you like a job, but would you like to submit material? And I and I had material to submit, so I did.
4: Hi, I would like to know what's a mistake that you've made when you were writing, and what you learned from it, and how it influenced future writing.
1: Very well asked. Thank you. <laughs> I have the time. I appreciate
0: it. Oh my God! So many.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, I can say one problem I constantly have in more in the room than in writing, although also in writing is. Uh, It takes me, like, a little longer than most people to, like, let things go. I think that it's hard for me to edit myself, and, uh, yes, so I think uh, walking away from something more easily would be great if I could do that.
1: Have you found a way to do that?
4: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I just keep telling myself, like, that that's how it gets good, Um, but it always feels bad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, these can be... You know, challenges not just in the writing process, but you know, in the room, on set, wherever.
5: I guess you guys are perfect. There no, there's so, there's so many, and I'm trying to think of what's like the least embarrassing.
1: Oh, no, give us the most embarrassing. No. Uh,
5: for me, I, a lot of it is uh, hemming and hawing over tiny little things instead of pushing forward and then maybe circling back around and fixing that, uh, which sometimes. I, I wish I was a perfectionist. I, I don't think I am. I think it's a weird form of procrastination and, uh, and fear of finishing something and it not being good. So it's really sometimes step, not stepping back and looking at the big picture.
0: Yeah, I, this is a slightly more meta, less articulate version of, of, of the same thing, which is I think that I, and, and I haven't learned from it because I continue to do it, but I think that <laughs> the fear of making mistakes Can can freeze you up. It's not necessarily writer's block, but I think this sort of idea of like, you know, um, oh my god, you know, I just had an idea, and right on the heels of that idea is excitement because you just have a gut, right? Like you know when you have an idea that excites you, right on the heels of that, there's going to be fear. Like excitement and fear, they're they're buds. Like It's very hard to just have pure excitement. Sometimes the more excited about something you are, the more scared you'll be because ultimately we're in a medium where we have to share that idea with someone else and if their excitement does not match our own then you start to go, oh, I'm a fucking idiot and, or, that's, or that's going to be a, be a mistake. And I think especially once you start making mistakes uh, professionally, and now we live in a day and age where, um, where the audience will tell you that you, you made a mistake um, very loudly and repetitively over and over again um, you know, that you might be less inclined to make more in the future and you just have to say like anything that's ever been accomplished with any degree of specialness You know there were just a a gazillion mistakes made along the way, and um, and you have to try to um, just accept that that's part of the process, and that there is no nothing great or even decent has ever been made without making a lot of mistakes along the way, and hopefully what separates the successes from the failures are your ability to say that was a mistake. I've corrected the mistake and maybe I haven't learned from it. I mean, that's why I was struggling with answering your question, which is I can't sit here and tell you like, and now I'm so much better than I was 10 years ago. In many ways, I think maybe I'm worse because once you have any level of success, it becomes about not losing it and it should be the exact Mm -hmm. opposite.
1: It's interesting to hear you say that considering like The Leftovers is a risky show. I feel like not just in doing the show itself, but you guys took risk in telling the stories. Uh, so you may be doing better than you think you are.
0: You think it's risky to make the most depressing show on television? <laughs> <That's> part <laughs> of it? Right, yeah. Okay, fair
1: enough. <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's there's reality there, yeah. and there's right. real emotion, and that's, that's uh, it's easy to be glib, you know?
3: Maybe you no. <laughs> don't. Uh, Kit, um... I think the thing that I really do believe on some level, but I keep forgetting it every time I write something, is that if I have X days to write, then really the way it's going to be the best at the end of those X days is to write the first draft as fast and as shitty as possible, or just as fast as possible, and not care. (laughs) It will be shitty, but to not... It's really hard to write shit when you know what shit looks like, and you know you're writing it. And... But writing is rewriting, and leaving I keep forgetting, you know f- thinking, "Oh, if I spend more time on the first draft, maybe I can turn it in. Maybe it'll be so good that I can, and it never is. So just write it fast.
4: Hi. Uh, have any of you gone out and purposely done anything kind of nutty or crazy with the intent of finding new source material for your writing?
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Resounding no from everyone. It's <laughs> a great idea, though.
3: Should we give her Is anything? anything? I don't know if I... I it's weird, because that reminded me of a book that I was asked to read to think, to see if I wanted to try to pitch it as a TV show, and it was kind of a stunt book, a stunt journalism. And it just didn't... It felt like a stunt. It felt like not something lived. It felt like, hey, here's a, a quirky idea. So I, I think reading that book kind of made me feel like, nah, I don't want to do I want to learn about stuff, but I don't want to, you know, intentionally be like George Plimpton
2: necessarily. <laughs>
4: also, like, the stuff that happens in real life, I find is so much infinitely more weird, like in day-to-day life, than what you could come up with. Like, constantly I'm reading about things where I'm like, if I made this up, no one would believe this. Um, I think there's, like, enough very strange things around us <laughs> to hone in on.
1: Um, who has your, been your favorite character to write with or who is nearest to your heart and why? To write for or to write with? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're characters you particularly enjoyed writing or that come easily. I would also add, which ones have been challenging especially for
2: you? While
1: well, you think of something, let's give this guy a prize so he stops looming over my shoulder. <laughs> Creeping me the fuck out. <laughs>
3: Would Kit do you have something well now, you can give? Well, Now I'm getting to the point where I may give something that someone will go, I don't want, what the? Too f- bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, another deep cut uh, a crew shirt from Lucky Louie. Wow. Ah. Come on. That's rad. Wow. Where were you I when the show that. was on? Assholes. Okay. None of you watched it. Now you're like, "Oh, what great
1: swag you have." That's really great. Cool. They're more they're more swag fans than yeah, really. <laughs> the show. Um what was the question? Oh, about characters you loved or uh did not love writing.
0: Anyone? It, it's such a tough question. I mean, it 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 is it is the equivalent of the, you know, um uh who's your favorite kid yeah. um, uh, yeah, question yeah. If, you, if you have multiple uh, yeah. children. So I, I think at any one time it, it, it shifts constantly. For, for me, um, you know, specifically on Lost, I think that uh, Jack was always the hardest character to write for because he's the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to make him uh, uh, interesting... Uh, Or give him a specific voice Uh, Very often he was in service Of other characters in the scene um, Allowing them to kind of play Whatever uh, Whatever they were playing So if Jack and Locke are in a scene You're like Locke is going to be saying all the interesting cool shit um, Because that guy was in a wheelchair And just just look at Jack Oh shut up Jack Just just look at you with your Scruff Um, And and I loved Matthew and Jack was the character that I identified with the most because um, uh, not because he's a handsome spinal surgeon, but uh, he was in this situation in the pilot where everybody was like, "You should be in charge um, you you know what you're doing." And he's like, "I don't fucking want to be in charge." Um, like I, you know JJ went off to go work on Mission Possible Three uh, you know, Done this before, so it was uh, it was catch as catch can for a while
5: there. Chris, uh, I love writing for Peggy and Jarvis a lot, but I think the guys and the devil on Reaper mm-hmm. was a ton of fun. Uh, and then, what was it about that specifically? Uh, the room. It was, part of it was the room, and we were all kind of friends in the room and a lot of the, the the stupid stuff that they would say to each other in the room came out of the stupid it came out of the stupid stuff we would say to each other in the room and there was even like at one point the, the there was the the sexual harassment seminar came to Reaper, and they played a scene from Desperate Housewives that one of the writers on Reaper had written, but it was about an interaction where I created a toxic work situation <laughs> when we worked together on Ed. And, it, and, and while this poor HR rep was there, it brought our, our fight back up. It was about eating a donut out of the toilet, which I, I raised the money to dare him to do, and then he refused to do it. <laughs> And so we started arguing again in the in the, in the HR meeting, but 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 the care, like that sort of stuff that like that was the guys in Reaper.
2: Right.
5: So it was a lot of fun. It was very easy. And then um, as far as challenging uh, the, the, the um there was a show called Bedford Diaries that we did on the WB. It was a one year thing, and we the w, I think I think it, it was created by Julie Martin and Tom Fontana. And I think Tom thinks it's the show that killed the WB. Uh, but that was a weird show for me. It was about college kids. And it was a weird show for me because I had started, as I was writing, started to realize I'm so, I realized I was not that young anymore. In a weird way, I, I felt, I started to feel a weird sense of being removed from college age. But it was still a lot of fun.
1: Uh, Noel and Kit, do you guys have um, characters you've loved writing?
4: Um, I agree There's too many But uh, in, in historical fiction we Like on Manhattan We had to write For characters Who would explain How fission works To each other Despite the fact That none of us Knew what we were Talking about uh, So the fact That you would have To read books About physics In order to write Dialogue Was pretty punishing
3: <laughs> uh, I'm I love When you get A character That you can Get a laugh With a word Or a look <laughs> Or a sound So Tina Belcher on Bob's Burgers uh, is pretty great. Who You know, just have her say butts <laughs> while looking at a boy's butt. Um, or Bobby Hill or Dale, Dale Gribble on yeah. King of the Hill was pretty awesome too for the same reason. Correct answers. <laughs> um, right.
1: we, we'll end as we always do by asking what you guys
5: are watching on television these days. Oh my God. We'll come I down know. the line. Uh, I'm in love with uh, Kimmy Schmidt. On <laughs> uh, Netflix. That show, uh, yeah, I love that show. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're binging on right now. And uh, I love The Mr. Robot as well.
1: It's, it's funny asking this question now, as opposed to, God, I think four or five years ago when we first started doing these, where now people are just watching one show. Mm. Because you'd watch the whole show at once Whereas before it was like, well I'm watching this and this and this and this Over a week Now one week is spent watching Kimmy Schmidt
5: Catastrophe on Amazon also God damn it 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 is so funny It's uh,
1: Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan uh, Created it And it's about an American guy who knocks up an Irish girl In England And then they try to make a go of it It's fantastic
0: Uh, Damon yeah, I've uh, I've already Mr. Robotted, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, we are um, six episodes into Kimmy Schmidt, and uh, uh, just binged finally Silicon Valley, um, which is uh, amazing, and uh, that's all that leaps to mind right now. I'm the looking interest. forward to kind of catching up on everything else. We we finish uh, shooting the finale of season two. Uh, in two weeks, and then I just move into a post-modality, so I th- hopefully we'll have a <laughs> bit of a life yeah. We'll send you a list. Oh, and uh, Rick and Morty. Thanks. That is my... Uh that is my, um, it is, the, the 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 42-year-old man's lament is in bed with the iPad, angled away from the wife, brightness turned all the way down, <laughs> headphones on, trying to restrain laughter, <laughs> oh, and Review is the other one. Yeah. Uh, unbel- if you guys are not watching Review, yeah. I can't just, disc- I-, I will tell you nothing about the show other than it is not what you think it is. <laughs> and it is getting... Better with every single episode. Yeah. It's Who, amazing. Where is it? It's on Comedy Central, um, and they just—they're—I think about halfway through their second season now. Uh-huh. I think but Andy, Daly's yeah, like yeah. Andy but Daly. Yeah. But it's impossible oh, to describe the premise of the show. You, you have to just watch one, but you will be rewarded, and it's—it's hevi- <laughs> it's heavily serialized yeah. uh-huh. and must be watched in order. <laughs> really good. Yeah. L- listen to Damon, you guys. Oh yeah, <laughs> you must. No.
4: I—I um, I watch like. Six hours of TV and I So I've seen all of those things (laughs) uh, Very recently And I'm perpetually watching Mad Men and Sopranos uh, Mm -hmm. Constantly Um, And I've been really into uh, Difficult people lately Which is weird because I don't think It's necessarily like the best TV show But I love them both so much They make me incredibly happy Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been watching A lot of Australian series lately What do they have? They have so much stuff. I've just run out of, like, everything else because I watch so much TV. Uh, But they have uh, Please Like Me and Puberty Blues, two shows my friend Erica turned me on to. Is that Erica? (laughs) Uh,
2: uh,
4: Oh, excellent. Uh, And Puberty Blues, it's so great. It's like a coming-of-age tale about two, like, 15-year-old girls in the 70s in Australia in a small surfing town, and it's... Excellent. Where can we we get these? On Hulu. Okay. And the other one you have to buy on iTunes. Please like me. But very fun. Cool.
3: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Robot also blew my mind. I thought it was great. Uh, Drunk History keeps (laughs) making me laugh. Really funny. And I keep proselytizing for getting on on HBO, Uh, the hospital Uh, show about That's the right. gerontology. Uh, is it work. done?
1: Is that show done?
3: Yeah. Okay. I, be- so, uh, I believe it Marvel. is. I believe yeah. it is, but it's really funny and really dark. Yeah. yeah.
1: Everyone keeps talking about that. I have to check it out. Thank you so much. Yep. Good answers, you guys. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks to everyone here at Meltdown to Eighty Six la